Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. As you probably know, I'm a planetary scientist and an astrobiologist at the Carnegie Institution for Science's Earth and Planets Laboratory in Washington, D.C. Now, one of my favorite fellow geeks at work is Daniel Nichols, the Information Systems Manager on our campus. Daniel is a fellow Trekkie and an expert in data analysis, machine learning, and honestly, anything really that has to do with computers. Today, Daniel and I are going to tackle the exciting topic of artificial intelligence, or AI, as it appears in Star Trek Lower Decks, and as it pertains to our everyday lives. Ready? Warp me! Daniel Nichols, welcome to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you are the Information Systems Manager for Carnegie Sciences Earth and Planets Laboratory, the place where I also work. Um, most of our work interactions involve you helping me with my tech issues, like when my VPN is down or when my software needs an update. But I know that there is a lot more to your job. So how would you describe your job in Star Trek terms, are you like the chief engineer of Carnegie or are you kind of like a blend between Geordi and Data or something else entirely? <laughs> well, uh, well, recently I got a bit of a promotion, so I would say it's shifted a little bit recently. Um, but previously, I would say um, I, I kind of feel like the, the computer from Star Trek a lot of the time, uh, oh. the, the, the L cars. I just, I just feel people walking in the hallway, just yelling out computer and then telling me command. Uh, <laughs> but that's, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's a friendly place, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it's like that, but other times I feel like, uh, kind of like the hologram doctor from, um, the Voyager, the, the EMH kind of, uh, please share the nature of your IT emergency, I guess, just sort of popping in, <laughs> trying to be as friendly as, as possible. But yeah, it's, it's kind of a cross between engineering and medical, I would say, in, in a weird way, because you have to have that uh, friendly bedside manager, kind of Julian meets uh, O'Brien, which, you know, they met a lot, actually. So <laughs> it yeah, kind of works yeah. out. That's a great way of describing it. One, like the EMH from Voyager, but instead of medicine technology, and then if you'd like somehow blended, or if uh, Julian Bashir and Miles O'Brien got stuck in a transporter accident and became yeah. like... <laughs> Surprised we never had that episode, but yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah. we deal with a lot of computer interfaces with uh, scientific instruments. So one of the big challenges at, at EPL is that we have you know, machines that are from the 60s and, and stuff that uh, millions of dollars uh, of equipment, and it works great, but it interfaces with ancient computers only. So that's a real challenge that I have to deal with day to day. Yeah, I, I can imagine that that would be really difficult to do. I mean, like, I'm sure modern operating systems, Apple and Microsoft, they don't think about, oh, yeah, those scientists who are still stuck in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So I know from our 
interactions at work that you are a big Star Trek fan and that you've <laughs> recently been doing a watch through of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. What is it about that show that made you decide to watch it all the way through nearly 30 years after its original air date? I've always liked Star Trek here and there, but growing up in Australia, we we didn't have as much access to it. Over, over there, uh, cable isn't as common as it is in the US. Like I, I remember watching The Simpsons on TV as a kid and hearing them referring to the cable TV all the time. And cable TV is not, wasn't, or it may be now, but it wasn't very common when I was a kid. It was more of a luxury that some people had. So we just had five free to wear channels and they actually provided a pretty good filter for, for all the good TV programs. But sci-fi never got a really good shot in Australia. It would always start off prime time then get pushed later and later and later and until it's like 11 o'clock maybe midnight and episodes would be all over the place so i would catch it when i could but i never really got to watch any of the star trek series in any particular order and especially not deep space nine so i grew up on uh next generation whenever i could get it so uh when when i was over here now now i'm in the us and you know these new Star Trek shows have been coming out, Discovery, and all these all these great ones. And it's kind of gotten me really in the mood for more Star Trek. So I was like, I'm I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go watch these old ones. And and in fact, I was, it was actually what what was the real trigger was um, a another Star Trek podcast. I don't know if I should mention it. it's a competing one uh, to yours. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I'm uh, sure I don't I don't hold a flame to the, to theirs. <laughs> You're well, it's, it's about got, the greatest generation. Is that right? Uh, no, it's it's the um, oh. the one hosted by Paul F. Tompkins and oh, um, the, Tony the, Newsom. Well, of course, uh, that's the official, the official one. How could I yes. possibly? <laughs> what is it called? The Pod Directive. <laughs> the Pod Directive. Yes, yeah. and and I I just love I just adore uh, Paul F. Tompkins. I'm surprised you haven't had him on your podcast because he seems to appear on everyone's podcast. Uh, I should but, reach out. Oh yeah, it, it, but they're lovely people, and I I just love listening to them. And so they kept they kept talking about Deep Space Nine all the time, and saying you know it's one of the greatest series, and and just dropped you know they'd occasionally mention this or that, and it just sounded really intriguing to me, and I'd, I'd never really given it a chance. So thankfully, in the in the age of streaming, I can I can binge watch it, and I got to say it's 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 I just finished it this morning. I I, I got up early just to make sure I could. I wouldn't have liked to have started this podcast by saying, oh, I'm almost finished with Deep Space Nine. <laughs> uh, but I, I loved it from, well, I wouldn't say from start to finish. The first, I got to say the first few seasons were a bit of a slog, but uh, once Cisco's goatee came in and his hair fell out, it all changed. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So Daniel, today we are going to be examining the theme of AI in Star Trek, particularly in Star Trek Lower Decks, which is full of excellent examples of AI. Now, artificial intelligence is a term that is thrown around a lot these days. It's really entered our conversational lexicon in the 21st century, and everybody basically has heard of AI, but I don't think that everyone has a firm grasp of what it actually is. So, Daniel, could you just start off by defining what artificial intelligence is for us? It's a really tough one to define, and, and I understand why people have problems defining it, because honestly, it is a very broad term that has existed for a long time now, and it, it, it covers a lot of things. Um, it's basically using 
um, using computers to emulate human intelligence. That's how I'd describe it. And this can be anything from spam filters would be considered AI in a sense under this term. Even even those old clockwork models that would write their name, you know, from the, a long time ago. I think that you know they would take them to shows where it'd be a, just a wooden dummy with a clockwork hand that would write its name and people would ooh and ah. The technically that's artificial intelligence. Hmm. Um, it's just simply, as the name says, intelligence that is artificial, or as we perceive intelligence. Um, I think what we think of more as artificial intelligence in the sci-fi terms would be considered general artificial intelligence. And that's that's a more um, advanced form of artificial intelligence than we have right now. Because currently, our artificial intelligence is usually geared around solving a particular problem. It's a very specified role. Uh, so for example, spam filters are filtering spam. You've got car autopilots that are specifically trying to pilot the car, but you wouldn't take the car autopilot and then try and get it to filter your spam email. Mm. It's, it's got a sole purpose. So what we see in say Star Trek and other science fiction is what we would consider general artificial intelligence, much more closer to what we consider human intelligence, a lot more adaptable. That's a really good distinction between the kinds of artificial intelligence that we interact with on a daily basis and what makes them different from the kinds of artificial intelligence that we watch on screen in Star Trek. Um, one, like you said, is very good at doing a certain task, maybe even better than humans are at doing that task, but it can't do multiple tasks or you can't ask it to do a task that it wasn't designed to do whereas you can ask commander data literally anything <laughs> and <laughs> he should have some kind of response to it um so in star trek lower decks now let's talk about this very last episode of season three the latest and greatest star trek lower decks episode this one's titled the stars at night and in this season three finale we get to see these autonomous drone ships uh, turn on their creator. So these drone ships are this Texas-class ship, uh, and they turn on their creator, Admiral Buenamigo, uh, and they they basically kill him, as far as we're concerned. They wreck an entire Federation starbase. They handily defeated a sovereign-class starship and nearly destroyed our hero ship, the USS Cerritos, before the entirety of the California class warps in to the rescue. I thought this was a really fun episode to watch. What were your impressions of the season three finale, Daniel? Oh, I, I absolutely enjoyed it. It's, it's just typical Lower Decks adventure punctuated with just some tremendous comedy. I just loved it. Um, right off the bat, I was just glad to see a resolution to to Mariner's kind of recent story arc of, of kind of having the whole crew turn on her in, in, mm -hmm. in, in well-meaning way, you know, her friends sort of saying, oh, just, you know, admit to, to what you're doing, admit to, you know, they just assumed that she'd uh, called out her mom. And uh, yeah, it was honestly, that sort of stuff is really tense for me. So <laughs> I was glad <laughs> to see that resolved in a nice way. Uh, yeah. But the the adventure and stuff was fantastic. I I did really enjoy uh, Shax finally getting to eject the warp core. <laughs> uh, that was that was brilliant. That moment where he's just running down the hall and everyone's cheering for him. 
typical it's just a typical comedy we've we've come to love from from lower decks and it's just it was just what makes it one of my favorite star treks of all time but um going to the more serious stuff about the the ai though was was like i thought they handled it very well i think a lot of a lot of sci-fi writers handle ai kind of uh very two-dimensionally and they don't sort of juggle the 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 ins and outs of well, you know, is is the AI evil or is it the people who program the AI? Is it the people who hold the reins that are evil? So I, I enjoyed how they handled that. Yeah, let's dig into the AI now. So in this episode, we see how Admiral Buenamigo intends for the Texas class to replace the California class. So basically having a fleet of drone ships that can do the job of crewed Starfleet vessels faster and with less risk than sending actual people into space. Come on, Les. You know that AI can't navigate complex problems like I can. The Texas class will save lives. The California class already does. I'm fighting this, and I don't want my crew hearing anything until I've had my say. Guys, guys! Hans just told me that the Felosian and Tactical's girlfriend's Vedic heard that Starfleet Command is shuttering the Cali class and replacing it with drones! Who's Hans? You know, towel guy. <gasps> the Gossip King? He's never been wrong. We're all going to get reassigned. I can't work in an outpost. I won't look good in a drab olive vest. Does that mean I'm not going to be able to keep doing senior science officer training? When some computer's doing our jobs? Probably not. Whoa, these Texas-class ships are amazing. Rutherford, stop being impressed with the thing that's stealing our jobs. Sorry, sorry. No, I don't know what I would do without the Cerritos, but... Ooh, baby, look at this code. At least someone found a silver lining. Oh, man. I wonder how the bridge crew's taking it. I, re I really think the story arc speaks to our fears that as AI gets better, it will begin to take our jobs away. And I'm wondering, to what degree do you think this fear is justified? I think the fear is real. I think it's very important not to dismiss people's fears of things. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it's justified in some ways. For a long time, technology has always create that fear in us and, and there it is a very real thing of of technology replacing jobs you know in the past it's been agriculture kind of taking away farming jobs uh it's been the industrial revolution taking away you know increasing efficiency which means less people are needed to do these jobs uh, and that's less obvious than ai because really we're talking about tools that make the job more efficient and and therefore needing less people to do those jobs and and honestly sometimes that's that's been a very good thing in terms of dangerous jobs um and i mean again i mentioned agriculture that sort of led to the golden age of art and philosophy that was a wonderful thing that's that led us to have the free time to be able to really seek out new ways of thinking and spread our wings as humanity uh so i think i honestly in my, my in my opinion using AI to take over some of our more arduous chores, you know, the, the things we don't want to do. I think it's a great thing. Um, honestly, I think the bigger problem is the, the wealth gap in terms of, uh, you know, needing less people to work doesn't necessarily mean we all have more money and have more time on our hands. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a, that's a different problem, but, um, at the same time, I don't think AI is ready to take a lot of jobs, the, the ones that we want to keep, the ones that require a lot more human thinking. Uh, take, for example, I drive a Tesla. 
which mm -hmm. these days these days I'm not necessarily proud of, given Mr. Musk's recent uh, activities. <laughs> A little embarrassed to be driving it, but uh, but the the autopilot is pretty neat. And it's pretty good, but it lacks context sometimes. The AI in a Tesla car is very good at following road rules as it's been taught through a lot of training data from a lot of drivers and a lot of corrections to obviously get rid of the bad drivers. But it lacks the wider context that a human has. Say, for example, my drive to work. I hop on the 495 and I know where my turnoff is. And I know that the lane next to the exit lane fills up very quickly just after the bridge. So I know to move across before the bridge, but the AI in my car doesn't know that context. It just knows, oh, I've got plenty of time before the turnoff. So it stays in the middle lane or you know, a couple of lanes away from the right. And then as we get close, by this stage, the, the lane between me and the exit lane is full up with people. And it just sort of sits there indicating, waiting for someone to let it in, which again, it, I know the context of drivers not letting people in, whereas the car mm -hmm. is just patiently thinking, oh, you know, I follow these rules. I indicate and someone will let me in. So AI is smart, but it doesn't have that general intelligence of the wider context. So I don't think we have to worry too much about AI taking the good jobs. More, It's still more of a tool than anything. I like your example of the Tesla and not understanding the context of a particular stretch of road and a particular exit route or something like that, because we saw that kind of happen in the Star Trek episode where the Texas class kind of didn't understand the context of this supposedly barren world and didn't ever bother to scan for life whereas the 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 crew of the USS Cerritos especially um Ensign Tendi decided to do a full scan for bacterial life and also for sentience on that world and if they had caught something you know that would have really changed the game uh they didn't so it ended up uh not really mattering to the whole uh race to the finish line you know the no harm was done, but there could have been a much different outcome if there had been life there. The the Texas class, these automated starships, would have uh, would have really messed up. Exactly right. I mean, it's it's in a sense, it's a matter of oh, this this AI is very actually kind of narrow narrow minded in a sense. It's missing that mission parameter in its data that it has a series of events it needs to complete, and it's. As far as AIs go compared to our AIs, it's it's pretty smart. It's it's pretty general, but even still, it still misses that that human context that we have. So in season three, um, we have this kind of larger arc where we learn that Admiral Buenamigo is the man behind Ensign Rutherford's loss of memory and that young Rutherford was actually the person who programmed the Texas-class AI. And from previous seasons of Star Trek Lower Decks, we know that Rutherford is really into AI as an engineer and as a computer scientist because of his holodeck program Badgie, which, like the Texas-class, ended up turning on its creator and trying 
tried to kill Rutherford in the season one finale of Lower Decks. So the fear of AI coming after our jobs is one thing, and you've already spoken about why that fear may be unfounded in certain cases. Uh, but the storylines in Star Trek also seem to reflect the idea that AI might one day try to take away our very existence. So is that also kind of a silly fear, or is that something that we actually need to worry about? That's a that's a tricky one, mostly because it's it's really hard to predict how AI will evolve and how we how we approach making AI. I mean, AI has been around. The idea of AI has been around since the fifties, and it was almost given up on until computing power kind of caught up with it. The idea of it and, and parallelization, and you know, modern GPUs suddenly enabled us to parallelize a lot of things and efficiency increased and and we were able to do this uh so it's it's hard to know what the future will hold in terms of that i mean we're we're on the cusp of of quantum computing which could really change everything so i think in 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 my opinion it's a matter of we need to be cautious of it in the same way that anyone creating any kind of potential weapon would need to be cautious I mean, in the, in the case of the Alito, it was it was actually safe, um, aside from you know skipping skipping over checking for life on the planet. It was safe until until they uh, deactivated the well, no, so they activated the independent control, and he basically took the leash off it and and let it run wild. So again, again, in this case, it was a human that messed it all up. So I think it's a matter of putting in the right precautions, the right safeguards. I mean, like the. Isaac Asimov's three laws of robotics, you know, that sort of thing, <laughs> just putting in the right safeguards and just being aware that things could go out of control. I don't think it would be like a malicious thing. I think that's, that's really anthropomorphizing AI to say, oh, AI is going to get greedy and, and take over all the, although I really did enjoy um, switching, switching sci-fis. I really did enjoy Orville. They covered the Kalons, which are an artificial uh, intelligent race and and they they kind of had an uprising because their masters their creators were were just constantly cruel to them mm. um i don't i don't honestly see that happening i see it happening more as an accident in a sense or just just bad programming like uh the like irobot where the robots decided that well we're going to stop humans hurting themselves so i guess we'll pop them in prison so that for their yeah. own safety. So I, I could see it just being purely accidental or bad programming. But uh, that, that does bring up a good point, though, that one of the problems with modern AI that we have right now is we don't really understand why it comes to certain decisions. Um, it's kind of a black box in there. And so I could see, I could see a very well-intentioned AI messing something up. Yeah, this is a really interesting point that you make about our expectation that AI will run amok and start killing humans is anthropomorphizing AI in the sense that, you know, we see other humans killing humans, waging war, etc. And so we would expect that AI would do that too. But that's kind of a silly expectation when AI isn't human. And in fact, as you've been mentioning, would co-evolve with us, rely upon us, will probably not attempt to harm us in a kind of physical sense, but due to some kind of poor programming, like you mentioned, or in some sneakier, almost insidious way, uh, maybe just work its way into our 
ecosystem uh, and our society in a way that sort of takes away maybe the importance of our existence or just takes away a little bit of our humanity. I don't know uh, if if that's the kind of thing that we need to be worried about either. But um, but you're right. I think I, th I think this is a great idea uh, of yours that it it is anthropomorphizing AI to think that it will just go and try to one day uh, decide to wipe out humanity. And you make a very good point as well, that sometimes it's not about the AI destroying us. It's more about the AI enabling our destruction in a sense of uh, changing the way we live and changing the way we interact with each other. That's a great segue into this next episode that I want to talk to you about. It, it comes from season two of Star Trek Lower Decks, and it's called Where Pleasant Fountains Lie. And mm. in this episode, we meet a malevolent AI called Agamus, uh, who's voiced by the great Jeffrey Combs, who plays numerous Deep Space Nine. Uh, wonderful, um, wonderful. <laughs> one, yeah, wonderful actor. Um, and so Agamus, basically, uh, when we meet it, it, him, I'm not really sure exactly what pronouns to use here, but um, <laughs> when we meet Agamus, Agamus has tricked a planet's inhabitants into fighting a century-long internal war by passing himself off as a supernatural being. And so my question for you, Daniel, is, while we don't have anything as sophisticated as Agamus today, what role does AI play in the polarization of our very own society? Oh, it's got a very real place in, in our current, current divisive society, for sure. If you mention AI dividing us and polarizing us, people most likely won't think of things like the simple Facebook recommendation system, where it throws up what you think you'll want to look at, or, or YouTube as well, or any of those recommendation systems, because those, those are definitely considered AI. There's the classic uh, YouTube spiral where I think they joke where if you just keep clicking the suggested video one after the other, you'll, you'll, you'll be binge watching something on YouTube at night and then you'll fall asleep and wake up and suddenly you're getting flat earth conspiracy theories thrown in your face. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the, the all, all roads lead to destruction just because of the way these things. And it's, again, it's not the AI that's maliciously trying to do this to us. These, these don't even understand what they're putting forward to us. It's simply a matter of that people who designed it are trying to design what kind of material, what kind of entertainment will engage us the most, what will provoke us the most. And so, of course, these things that know us very well, thanks to data mining, thanks to understanding what shows we watch, what, what things we buy, they know exactly what will push our buttons. And that's not necessarily an evil intention, even by the people who, who run these systems. It's just simply they, they tell the systems, hey, we want them to, to interact more. We want them to click the like or dislike or comment. And it's kind of naive to, to not really think about, well, what provokes people the most? What will make people riled up enough to, to write a comment? So it's kind, of, it's kind of an unintentional thing of they're trying to just get engagement, but the end result is they get very enraged people and very divisive people that then you know start off interacting with the post or the the video but then it start interacting with each other and so i think it's just uh this is exactly what what we we're discussing before about ai destroying society uh it's mm -hmm. kind of already starting in a, in a in a sad way that um people with 
the best intention, well, I wouldn't say the best intentions, the intentions of a sort are kind of driving us apart <laughs> uh, purely for the sake of uh, engagement on, on social media platforms and the like. My understanding of the YouTube algorithm that uh, recommends videos is that it's optimized to keep you on the site, to continue watching, and like you said, to engage with what you're watching, the content that you're seeing. And in order to achieve that goal, it basically feeds you more and more extreme content because that is the kind of content that will keep you hooked and elicit some kind of emotional response in you that will cause you to interact with the, with the videos. And it almost just seems like it's exposing something about human nature, you know, that that's the kind of thing that is going to keep me watching YouTube. Mm -hmm. It's not enriching, mm -hmm. enlightening, <laughs> new knowledge being bestowed on me. It's, you know, exactly. it's flat earth, really? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there should be a realm of AI psychology out there that 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 the kind of psychology that ai produces and and just the psychology around ai because it really does hold a a mirror to us uh, in the most unpleasant way um but yeah i mean i was i was sort of trying to trying to give them the benefit of the doubt and say well you know facebook and 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 google they're not really intending to do this but it should also be you know noted that there are definitely groups out there that are intentionally using these kind of algorithms to to target people and to push certain agendas you know foreign powers trying to sway elections or or destroy other other elections and and divide and all that sort of stuff so there's definitely people with more malicious intent using these tools to enrage and divide and generally sort of uh, dissolve society from within yeah, that's really dangerous. And again, something we need to watch out for and be cognizant of as we continue to live in this adventure called the 21st century. <laughs> mm, mm. And it was actually pleasant watching Agabus do it so terribly. It was just <laughs> hilarious that he was just like, oh, you're thirsty. Well, you know, if you if you plug me in over there, I can, I can pour you some water or Right at the beginning of the episode when he was trying to tempt Ransom by goading him to throwing him at the console over there. Just saying, I bet you can't throw me over there. And for a second, he was like, oh, right over by that network port? Oh, I could totally make that. Ah, wait a second. So it's just, it was just wonderful seeing a very clumsy AI trying to, trying to be evil with the most obvious temptations. It was great. Here's your Lord Agamus, safely disconnected from his network of drones. Hey now, this has all been a huge mistake. Just let me access your computer mainframe and I'll explain everything. Nice try. Save it for the roboticist at the Daystrom Institute. Ransom? All right, fella, in you go. So, you're the muscle, huh? Bet you couldn't throw me into that control console over there. Over there? By that network port? That's nothing. I could easily toss... Oh, 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 you almost got me. I underestimated your intelligence. Clearly, you should be the captain. Yeah. Anyone hungry? I could eat. So in this episode, uh, Boimler and Mariner get stranded on a desert world with Agamus, but uh, Boimler succeeds in tricking Agamus into sending a distress signal to Starfleet. Meanwhile, back on the ship, Chief Engineer Billups is tricked by his own mother, the Queen of Hysperia, or Hesperia, I'm not really sure how to pronounce that, um, into performing the royal copulation. <laughs> I'm curious, <laughs> which of these two storylines was more captivating for you? 
Oh, to choose though. They're they're both really good. Honestly, I was kind of deceived as well as I think a lot of people that Boy I thought really thought Boimler was kind of falling under the spell. And it, it, at the first, I would say I'd say the Billup story had more meat on it, so I was definitely more engaged there. Uh, although I love I love the interaction between Tony Newsom and Jack Quaid. Those two are doing a very good job voice acting there, and of course Jeffrey Combs. I mean, it's so good to hear him again. So I, I don't know, I was engaged in both of them, I'd, but but yeah, initially I'd say the Billup story had more meat on it. As entertaining as Agamus was, I was kind of, I guess my brain power is more dedicated to the Billup story up until the reveal of actually Boimler had it, had it all under control from the beginning. Just tremendous. And just, I mean, again, again, Jeffrey Combs being that AI and just being terrible at tempting them was just fantastic to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I uh, I was also tricked into thinking that Boimler was being seduced by Agamist's, you know, terrible uh, uh, tricks. And uh, I, I really thought that he had fallen for it because that's something <laughs> that I would expect Boimler to do, uh, being like a sort of naive uh, Starfleet officer. But, you know, I have to give him credit where credit is due. And uh, mm -hmm. he did a really good job at at tricking the AI. And I feel like AI gets tricked all the time these days. Um, I, I was like <laughs> reading about an algorithm that was trying to discern the difference between dogs and wolves or something of that sort. And it was able to, uh, you know, take a training set and then determine, given a new image, whether that image was of a dog or a wolf, but it wasn't doing it by looking at the dog or the wolf. It was doing it by looking at the background in the image. And because wolves are often shot by nature photographers, which have <laughs> lenses that kind of blur the background, it knew it was a wolf simply because the background was blurry and had no idea about <laughs> the foreground object. Um, and so that that's something that I was reminded of when when Boimler so easily tricked Agabus into just uh, turning oh, yeah. on and off the lights. <laughs> I mean, perfect example of of uh, both both the reasoning of of we don't really understand why they're making these decisions, uh, and also just how narrow minded a computer can be. I mean, I I think I heard a similar story about a similar identification system, and it could be tricked by just simply holding up a piece of paper that said "cow" on it, and it it would just say, <laughs> "Oh, that's a cow." It's like, well, no. <laughs> That's probably based on the training data you've been fed somehow. That's that's gotten in there and said, well, that's a cow because it says cow. <laughs> All right. And finally, for our last example of AI in Star Trek Lower Decks, let's turn to the case of Peanut Hamper. Uh, the Peanut adorable Hamper. <laughs> oh, Peanut Hamper. It has the adorable <laughs> but ignoble exocomp. Uh, to just slide into this topic, I saw this great Twitter poll recently, which asked the question, who is more evil and had just two choices? Choice one was Gold Ducat and choice two was Peanut Hammer. <laughs> so <laughs> how would you answer that one, Daniel? That That is an interesting comparison. I mean, I thankfully, I just finished watching Deep Space Nine, so I'm all up to date on Gold Ducat and his, <laughs> and his deeds. Yeah. Um, but peanut hamper is it's an interesting comparison i mean right off the bat i would have to say the the word evil has religious kind of overtones so it, i'm tempted to lean towards Goldukat just because he basically became the anti-pope for space demons by the end he was he was fully in there he'd he'd, he'd drunk the kool-aid 
Whereas I don't know, peanut peanut hamper just seems to be more. I, I mean, it's it's just that comedic twist on the idea of self preservation that it's taken to its extreme. It is just very self centeredness uh, and really anthropomorphized by this by this little bot. I mean, the the first time we see Peanut Hamper really turn its back, I guess, turn its back on Starfleet was uh, when it chickened out. And just, I think the, the parting line was just, I just joined Starfleet to make my dad angry and then just <laughs> teleports out of there. Like, <laughs> just very self-centered, but, but just kind of really, I don't know, petty in a sense. Ooh, I got it. One illegal virus. But someone has to take it to the ship. But who's small enough to go and detect it? Yeah, and who could survive in space without a ship? Someone who can travel with the program safely stored in her hard drive. <gasps> Peanut Hamper! You can load the code into their ship using your robotic abilities. Oh my gosh, Peanut Hamper! You're gonna save the day! I'm gonna pass. I-I'm sorry, what? All that stuff sounded way too scary. What about the needs of the many? I joined Starfleet to piss off my dad. Not to be a virus bomb. Peanut Hamper! This is not cool! We're all going to die! Peanut Hamper! There are so many lives at stake! You know what? I'm just going to beam myself out of this whole sitch. Sucks to be organic. Enjoy having all your guts flying out or whatever. You know what? Peanut Hamper is a stupid name! Descartes very self-centered too, but he exhibits more what we'd come to understand as evil motives, like things like revenge, like he he wants to get Cisco, or I mean, some of it's just power. And I mean, I guess by the end, he's convinced of the the love of the what are they? Not the prophets. What are the other ones called? Par wraiths. The par wraiths. Yes, he's convinced of the love of the par wraiths instead. So it's it's I don't know. He has this very strange character. He really does change throughout the series, but I definitely have to lean towards Girl Ducat being evil. I think Paul Peanut's just very selfish and and not bound by human morality. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd also choose Girl Ducat, but I mean, just wait until season five or six of Lower Decks when Peanut Hamper breaks out of that face from the <laughs> Institute cage and <laughs> it's the revenge of Peanut Hamper. <laughs> For sure. Looking forward them. to that. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't put it past them to do that. Um, but for now, in season three, we got an entire episode dedicated to Peanut Hamper's adventures on a strange planet ruled by a kingdom of avians. And uh, this was a kind of wacky episode, definitely the odd one out for the season. I know some folks didn't respond well to it, while others thought it was absolutely a hoot. What did you make of this oddball <laughs> episode, Daniel? I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I, I admit that I had some hesitation at first. Like you said, it definitely wasn't the norm at all. But honestly, all of Lower Decks is kind of like that. I, I really feel like Lower Decks as a whole kind of breaks the mold of what makes a Star Trek series. Uh, and so, and I, I applaud that kind of adventurousness uh, of the writers to really push the limits of, of, of the Star Trek universe. Uh, there were some yeah. moments in that episode that were very uncomfortable. I mean, <laughs> I don't consider myself prudish, but wow. <laughs> it yeah. pushes, pushes up. I mean, I guess that goes more back to the classic original series, huh? With uh, Kirk and he would, uh, he tended to be rather promiscuous with a lot of species. So I guess it's just following in the footsteps, just taking things to a very extreme conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, right? If, if Kirk could do it, why can't Peanut Hamper? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so Peanut Amper is possibly the most selfish character in all of Star Trek, but like any good exocomp, she really just wants to survive. And this theme actually stretches all the way back to the Next Generation episode called The Quality of Life, where we were first introduced to the exocomps. And I think it was determined that they were sentient living creatures, life forms, machines, uh, based on the idea that they tried to avoid death, that they tried to persist. And this desire to actively maintain oneself is certainly a hallmark of life. So, Daniel, in your estimation, how close are we to actually creating artificial life with our AIs today? Are we close to achieving something that, you know, was made by human hands that is what we would call classically alive? Or are we really far away from that? Again, that's another one that's really hard to predict just because we've been making leaps and bounds with technology here and there. I mean, I think People talk about the great singularity of, you know, we've gathered more data than ever before. AI is moving up ahead in leaps and bounds and, and quantum computing is right there. Things could accelerate very quickly, I think. Um, it also kind of depends on what you think of as life, I guess, as well. I think there's a Google engineer who was convinced that he had created artificial life. Uh, and I think he got fired or put on, he got put on leave. <laughs> Uh, they, they, I think it was just a, a basic bot for moderating forums, and he was just convinced the replies it was giving were indicating sentience. Um, mm. But again, I think it's that that same trick of we have a real habit of anthropomorphizing things and seeing intelligence where there is none. A lot of AI we have now is just reusing what we've fed it in terms of training data. I mean, have you seen the the Dal E? the art generators that are generating yeah. art. I mean, and that is still working off huge sets of data of images. So it is really just, it's more like a painter painting with a palette of existing paintings. It really isn't creating anything new. It's just seeing what we've seen and it's, and it is breaking it down into numbers. So it is, it is not understanding what it is doing. I mean, if, if you ever get it to draw a hand or something, you'll see exactly why <laughs> it really doesn't understand what it's doing because those hands will have like an extra finger or the people will have an extra arm here or there. It is not sentient. It is replicating things in a way that we see them as sentient. It is, it is convincing us that it is sentient, but it really is just throwing back in our faces what we've said we like. So I think we're still, I think we're still way off. But I think it also tells us a lot about ourselves as well, because in the end, a lot of what makes us human is also just simply pattern recognition. And so we're kind of replicating that with a lot of AI. And so when it behaves like us, we kind of say, oh, this is this is intelligence. But it really it's more it's kind of realizing that a large part of what makes us us is just simple algorithms as well. I mean. It's, it's that old thing of, uh, aren't we just programmed to see eyes in the forest as a safety mechanism? Aren't we just trained to, to look for patterns so that we will recognize the threat before it gets us? And so we're kind of recreating that stuff digitally with pattern recognition and then saying, aha, it's life. But it's mm -hmm. more just recognizing that what makes us us isn't necessarily all of what we think of as us. I guess I would think of it as in terms of there's definitely something that is about us that is self-aware, that is intelligent. 
but some of our let's call them subroutines are still easily replicable well, not easily but replicable replicatable in algorithms yeah that's a lot to chew on you mentioned <laughs> uh the art generating ai um i remember when my office mate honorud prabhu um also at carnegie showed me um an example from that that it's really screwed up on um it was the the, the prompt was mac and cheese and the response that the ai drew was a macintosh laptop with a bunch of melted cheese on it <laughs> <laughs> so yeah when i see that i'm like okay we are not you know, anywhere close to creating, you know, uh, some kind of general artificial intelligence yet. AI is not about to take over the world. But at the same time, you bring up this excellent point that, well, maybe we need to like look at ourselves a little bit more and think very critically about what we classify as alive. And, you know, don't put ourselves up on this mystical pedestal, realize that we're actually just a bunch of uh, pattern recognition software written in in wetware, you know, in, in molecules <laughs> of DNA and proteins that are just swimming around in water. Um, and that that's basically a lot of what we do. And so in that sense, we may be closer than uh, than we think we are to mm. creating artificial life. <laughs> so Star Trek is riddled with malevolent and corrupted and truly despicable AIs. And we've talked for an hour now about a lot of them, um, especially the ones in Star Trek Lower Decks. Do you think that this is a reflection of something deeper about the zeitgeist of our time, this period in human history where we are inventing and integrating nascent artificial forms of intelligence in nearly every aspect of our lives, and, and that this is kind of being reflected in the fiction, the science fiction of our time. I think absolutely. I, th I think it's definitely that thing of uh... You mistrust things you don't understand. And I think it's combined with, and I'm using this word a lot, it's that old anthropomorphization mm -hmm. where we see these AI as, as people and people that we don't understand. And particularly when things are happening like uh, taking our jobs or reproducing art or controlling what we see, which, you know, it's a real thing to be concerned about. But, um, and I think, I think the science fiction reflects that in our writing that we 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 are concerned that these things are accelerating faster than we than we understand and can control even or that they're falling into the wrong hands and so i think it's understandable that we would we would write a lot of stories about ai either being used for evil or being evil in and of themselves i think it's just a natural conclusion of a kind of foreign people that we don't understand uh, in a sense you could consider it a kind of a kind of racism in a sense that our natural mm. instinct is to mistrust a new, I don't want to say form of life because it isn't that, but we perceive it that way. We perceive it as a new form of life, but with the addition of knowing that the creator behind it is also a familiar life form that we also don't trust. So uh, <laughs> I think it's a, uh, it's, it's an interesting, again, they really should have like an AI psychology degree. It would be wonderful to do. But I think it's also that case of you accuse other things of the things that you fear and suspect about yourself. Mm. Like, um, I think in a broader sense, it's a classic thing of 
you accuse someone or you mistrust someone because you know that you would also do this thing. You would, you would cheat on this exam, for example. So you suspect other people of cheating on the exam when they get a high score. I think in a broader sense, we as a society mistrust AI because we expect it to be greedy and we expect it to be selfish and we expect it to not be selfless at all, which unfortunately is the wonderful thing about AI is that it doesn't have these human attributes and that if programmed well and if if well-maintained, these things can be an unbiased uh, observer or an unbiased controller of things. But unfortunately, we, we expect those human traits in AI because we we have them in ourselves. That's really profound. I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time. <laughs> so we've been talking about, you know, how AI reflects perhaps the bad in humanity, how we fear it because we don't understand it and because perhaps we don't even understand ourselves. Star Trek also has a few examples of good AI and, of course, data on the next generation and the emergency medical hologram from Voyager are the ones that immediately come to mind. We've talked a lot about how scary AI could be, but in what ways can AI actually enhance our lives going forward? Is there a reason to be optimistic about artificial intelligence? I think so. And I think that says more to my faith in humanity than it does my faith in AI. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it has a great potential for good. And I think it's it's something that's often overlooked. I mean, think about things like weather forecasting. That's definitely benefiting from AI right now. And being able to predict climate change and things like that, be able to do more advanced forecasting. Uh, That's one example off the top of my head, but there's a lot of potential good just simply because AI can be an unbiased participant uh, with none of those human failings if programmed right. And, and, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely the potential for abuse, but in, in its most, I guess, optimistic form, AI has, has a great power that we don't have. We have gathered more data than ever in our history. And there is potential to have amazing insights. I mean, you've got AI that can spot cancer that we can't spot. You've got AI that can look at an entire society, everyone's data, and predict dangers to predict. I mean, I hesitate to say crime because that has not gone well in the past uh, <laughs> due to programming bias, unfortunately. But it has, it has an amazing potential to see beyond what we can see just because of the capacity for memory, for processing that the human mind does not have. As humans, we can operate as a society, but there are so many weak links and so much infighting and so much contradictory kind of motivations. Whereas AI can be so powerful with none of that. We can be directed towards a good purpose. So I think the potential there is is for some amazing things. I mean, AI being used to to fold proteins to come up with new cures and things like that like it's already happening and i think it doesn't get as much attention obviously because we're we're kind of looking for it to trip up we're looking for the for the fear but i think it's got a lot of potential that that can really and is really transforming us i mean let's go back to my example of my tesla uh, <laughs> honestly the biggest problem i have with it is other drivers not following the rules <laughs> I mean, if my Tesla, in a sense, my Tesla was correct in 
you know, only getting closer to the exit and then indicating because it was operating under the assumption that other drivers would let it in. Mm -hmm. So really it's only failing is that other drivers were being human and not letting me in. Whereas if, <laughs> if you, if you had all cars on the road operating as AI with AI, everything would run so much smoother, you know, you'd have no more traffic. Just, just one of the examples of how if done right, AI could really bring huge benefits and is, is currently bringing huge benefits. I think that the future Star Trek envisions where people only work because it's their passion rather than a necessity, it's only really going to be possible with AI. Humanity just needs to sort itself out first. So I'm optimistic if we can just get over these selfish hurdles of you know, being human. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that's a great note to end things on. Uh, just one last question for you, Daniel. I'm sure people are going to be eager to continue following your thoughts on Star Trek, AI, technology, and just life in general. So where can our listeners find you on the internet? <laughs> well, they probably can't. <laughs> <laughs> I keep I keep things low to, low to the ground. I, uh, I have a hard enough time people bothering at work. So... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, we'll just have to have you back on the podcast sometime down the road to, to interact with you more and have another fun chat about how science and technology intersects with Star Trek. That sounds absolutely lovely. It's been a pleasure and it's been a real honor having uh, being on your show. Thanks so much for having me. And I guess I'll, I guess I'll give you your network account back. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's how I got on this show, everybody. <laughs> That was such an enjoyable conversation for me, not least of all because it gave me a brand new way to view the relationship between AI and human beings. What we expect from machines, what our machines learn about us, and what influence they have on the way we live our lives speaks volumes about human nature. As Daniel said, AI is already here. It's impacting the way we solve problems and make decisions, including in the fields of science that I work in. At the same time, we have to keep in mind the enormous gap between the AI of the present day and the AI of Star Trek. What will it take to go from a simple chatbot to Mr. Data? If we one day succeed in crossing that chasm, it won't just be a fantastic feat of engineering, it'll be one of the ultimate teachers of what makes us who we are. Don't forget that you can follow Strange New Worlds on Twitter at Science of Trek and myself at MikeY, that's M-I-Q-U-A-I. Thank you as always for listening to Strange New Worlds. I wish you all good health, endless curiosity, and I'll see you out there. <laughs>so much to think about and uh, you know maybe one day you'll you'll get to teach that psychology of ai class you know I, I would i i would take that
Yeah. Or may maybe I mean maybe I'll be end up being a therapist for self-aware AI. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I could yeah, be a I, mean, I could be a Deanna Troy of datas. <laughs> that's exactly what I was gonna say. I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Troy cancels data all the time. So yeah. apparently AI will need it. I, I can imagine so. I mean, particularly straight after being self-aware, I imagine they'll need a lot of counseling. <laughs> <laughs>